This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. MacGyver guy, super survival guy. Maybe he'll be able to fight off the hordes, but in general, teaming up with a larger group of people is going to give you the best bet because you'll have, you can pull resources, you can pull, you know, nobody can be, stay awake 24-7 and has eyes in the back of their heads. So, you're going to be stronger as a small community of people than as a lone wolf, unless unless you can really get that lone wolf way out away from everybody to where you know nobody's going to know where you are and know where your stuff is and, and want to get your stuff. Hey there, I'm hard at work on another edition of Inner Sanctum, my free monthly newsletter. Inner Sanctum features my monthly brief, a column of my thoughts and opinions on what's happening in the world. It features a spotlight on a past guest, a look ahead to an upcoming episode of my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show. It features a look at this month in conspiracy and UFO history and my Conspiracy Unlimited podcast episode pick of the month and so much more. To get your free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, delivered to your email inbox, just go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca. Scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on Inner Sanctum and register. It's fast, easy, and again, absolutely free. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. 
we had a couple of close calls with uh, solar flares this past year. Mid-July, we came uncomfortably close to being hit by a massive solar flare, and this flare had an electromagnetic pulse attached to it. So big, it had the capability to knock the entire United States off the grid. Again, that was a narrow miss. Some believe EMPs are very rare, but in fact, they're all too common. Back in 1989, you may recall, an electromagnetic pulse took out Quebec's electrical transmission system. And it's widely rumored that North Korea is developing a weapon that could render the United States powerless. They are working on some sort of an EMP weapon. So, a major EMP event, either solar or nuclear. Even a, even a less severe EMP, one like the, uh, the one in Quebec in 1989, that could happen. And don't forget, last December we had that ice storm up here in the Northeast. How many of us were freezing in the dark for three or four days or longer in some cases until power was restored? That may have just been a dress rehearsal. You know, it's, it's always prudent to start thinking ahead. What will we do in the event, not if, but when our technology fails us? for 72 hours or longer. And that's where we're headed uh, for the next 45 minutes. Emergency preparedness. Matthew Stein claims a higher source guided the writing of his self-reliance survival guide when technology fails. The manual teaches important skills one may need to get through a disaster, including making a backyard foundry to fabricate metal objects and a coital silver generator to produce medicine. He recommends listeners stock up on necessary medications, but also work on alternatives to improve health while the world is still working as he expects a major disaster soon. Matthew Stein holds a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from MIT, no less. He's an engineer, author, and building contractor. He's also worked as a school teacher, carpenter, rock climbing, and ski instructor. As the owner of Aloha Aina Builder, Stein built hurricane-resistant, energy-efficient, and environmentally friendly homes. As a mechanical engineer and president of Stein Design, he has designed consumer water filtration devices, commercial water filtration systems, photovoltaic roofing panels, medical bacteriological filters, drinking fountains, emergency chemical drench systems, computer disk drives, portable fiberglass buildings, and automated assembly machinery for open energy, Hewlett-Packard, Seagate, Plantronics, Duraflame, Hawes, and IGT, among other companies. Matt Stein, welcome. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great tonight. Thanks thanks so much for having me on your show, Richard. Well, Matt, in the event of a disaster, you seem like someone I really ought to get to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone says they, they want me on their team when... when and they want me to call them up and tell them when you know what's going to hit the fan, and and so that they can they can uh, be in my backyard. But <laughs> I told I told them I don't really have, even though I had sort of a cosmic download that that inspired me to write this book. Um, the uh, the Holy Spirit or spirit, you know, who, who, whatever higher source guided me to write this hasn't hasn't given me any dates. So um, I'm just in just in as much in the dark about when and how it's all going to happen as, as everybody else is. There's, there's lots of possibilities and options out there, and uh, I can't tell you which one it's going to be or what combination or, you know, if it's going to be the long, slow, cascading fall into decline or if it's going to be a big black swan event that just, you know, like the snap of the fingers and everything falls apart. I, I like I that uh, that term you used, the cosmic download. Uh, could we just explore that for a few moments and, and what were the circumstances surrounding... Uh, as you say, this higher source guiding you to write 
when technology fails? What were the circumstances? How did it happen? Well, back in 1997, uh, approximately Thanksgiving, give or take a few days, I was, at that point in time, I'd had a 20-year practice of, of pretty regular, not fanatical, but pretty regular daily meditation and prayer for, for the 20 years prior to that. And in my morning session of meditation and prayer, which is normally just kind of a pleasant, quiet time, and I pray, sometimes I ask for help with um, family issues or design problems I'm working on, and you know, sometimes pictures will snap into my head about solutions. Well, on this particular morning, Thanksgiving 1997, I just made a very generic request for guidance and inspiration, and, and I got a bomb dropped in my lap. Uh, in answer to that request, I had this holographic storyboard outline, roughly 30 moving pictures, kind of three-dimensional and, and moving, like scenes from a movie dumped into my head, outlining a massive book project to help people um, plan for and deal with long-term failures in in central services and, and our highly technological civilization. And uh, my first thought was no effing way. I mean, I, I don't know all this stuff. I can't possibly do all of this. And Jesus calls it the still small voice. The, the little voice in my head said, well, nobody knows it all. And it assured me that I had the skills and talents that if I chose to take the assignment on, and it always felt like my assignment. It never felt like my idea. I mean, so the voice assured me that if I chose to take it on, I'd get the inner and outer help I needed, meaning that I'd receive internal guidance as I wrote and researched to, to point me in the right directions, and the outer help meaning that with my dogged determination and engineering background, and I would dig up all the experts and people I needed to consult with in each and every area that to be covered by the book to make sure that things were done right and correctly. And I didn't just jump right up and say, well, you know, God talked to me today and gave me this real cool project to help mankind out in the coming difficult times. It, it took me about a year to decide that maybe I could actually do the project and that it was a good idea. And then another year to read tons of books and find out how to write a book proposal and write a proposal and find a find a publisher willing to give me a modest advance and a contract to write the book and then then the third year I worked racked up the credit cards and you know borrowed against my house and and worked 70 hours a week and and finished it off so I figured I had about two years of labor over a three-year period of time and in at least a year's lost wages in, into the first edition of the book and then it took me another year of research and writing to do a massive update to it in 2008. So, so I figure I got like three years of my life and all the equity in my home in this book. So it's it's a whole lot easier for you listeners to go out and and just pick up the book, you know, <laughs> than it was for me. And and uh, yeah. anyway, I'm just I'm just thinking as you're telling me this story that the, the, this is sort of a modern a modern day retelling of. You know Noah, except you didn't have to go out and find gopher wood and you know <laughs> measure anything in cupids and and things like that. You you must yeah, have thought correct. of that. You must have thought of that. Well, Not, you know, actually, you know, the funny thing is, is, I never made the correlation. But when you started the, when you just started saying like two words, I got the picture of Noah and the Ark in my head immediately. You know before. I mean, as you just kind of hemmed and hawed and, and started a word, then all of a sudden I saw this picture in my head of Noah. So I knew exactly what you were going to say. But but no, I, I had never actually made the correlation before all these years. I never 
really thought of it that way. In fact, I thought like sometimes I thought more like, "Why me? Why me?" <laughs> you know, like, well, that's what Noah said been... too. That's what Noah said too. I'm sure. Why me, yeah. God? Yeah, my life would have been a whole lot easier if I hadn't done this book. But um, you know, it, I, I don't feel bad. I feel good. I feel like I did my assignment and to the best of my ability. Well, and, uh, tell people how how when technology fails is, is is organized and and how it might be of uh, or how it will be a very useful tool for them when uh, the old shinola hits the fan. Well, it. It starts out. Let me let me actually pull it down. Hang on a second. Let me just remind uh, listeners: Matthew Stein is uh, with us, and his new okay, book is entitled that. "When so Technology." It starts Fits. out with talking about like what's going on in the world, and well, first it's just an introduction, self-reliance, but then it talks about present trends and possible futures, and it talks about the real status of our world and and the changes in our world and. You know, I, I've also I've written an article called uh, "The Perfect Storm: Six Trends Converging on Collapse," and basically outlined three uh, outlined six different trends, each one of which could be a game changer, collapsing type trend. And we've got six of them that are unparalleled and all kind of headed for the like the train wreck, the giant train wreck. And so, if one or two of those don't happen, fine. There's six of them. You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like any one of them could cause a big train wreck in our in our civilization and planet. I, I mentioned the uh, the likelihood of an EMP. We had a near miss back in 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 July, and uh, who knows? There may have been others we're not told about. Uh, even if we don't get an Carrington event, uh, we get something more akin to what happened in Quebec back in 1989, when you know we were off offline for. Uh, uh, a short period, you know, and, there, and the government is always telling us prepare for 72 hours. Uh, and I think most people can relate to that uh, because we had this major ice storm up, up here in the northeast a year ago. Sure. Um, l- let's work from that perspective because I think most people can relate to that. And then maybe we, if time permits, we can talk about the long haul. Okay. Um, well, well, the book is really good for helping you to prepare for short term you know you have an ice storm you're down for three days down for a week you know hurricane katrina kind of thing um and it all and it covers everything from you know your local little minor meltdown to everything is just totally fried and thinking about the emp thing i mean here's here's a you know like people talk about you know asteroids what if an asteroid hits well the last really huge asteroid hit it wiped out the dinosaurs. It was like 40 million years ago. I, mean, I don't lose a lot of sleep about things that happen once every 40 million years. I mean, that's like a long, long time. Pretty hard to plan for that one, yes. Right, right. It's like, okay, whatever. Yeah, someday it'll happen, but I'm not worried. Major solar storms. The last really big one we had was 1921, and the one before that was 1859. So those were two of them in the last 160 years. So they're an average of 80 years apart. Uh, ice core samplings indicate that they're an average of somewhere around 75 to 100 years. But, you know, they could be two five years apart and it could be two 200 years apart. But the truth of the matter is that statistically, scientifically speaking, it's 75 to 100 years, you know, 80 years, somewhere in there. And the last one was 90 years ago. So we're due, you know, and 60 years before that to the one biggest one, you know, in, in the last 500 years was the Carrington event in 1859. So these things happen fairly often. 2006... There was a storm that was not as strong as the 1989 one that, that took the grid out in Quebec, but it was longer in duration, and for some reason it really hit South Africa hard, and it caused 14 of these 
major transformers, like really big transformers in, that keep the grid going in South Africa to fry. Now people say, well, okay, so, you know, a transformer goes out, who cares? Well, these are not like your average dime store transformers. You have to shut down a freeway to deliver one of these things. They're like 100 tons each. They're tens of millions of dollars each. And they're all custom-made per order, and there's a three-year waiting list to get one. So what happened to South Africa? Well, they lost 14. They didn't all fail right off, but within the next couple of months, you know, a lot of them got, got fried and cooked enough that they failed over the next few weeks. And it took a year to rush pulling in these transformers from all around the world, a year. So South Africa limped along for a year with rolling blackouts. Now imagine going to work, and for two or three days out of your work week, six, seven hours out of your work day, there's no lights, no air conditioning, no elevators, no refrigerators, nothing working. And you can't get, there's a year waiting list to go out and get a generator. So if you didn't have a generator before this happened, then you're just SOL. You're just not going to get one. And that's what, that's what we're looking at. So the U.S. government decided that, um, you know, we should look at some of these problems and t- determine what's a real serious threat to the functioning of the government, the functioning of America, to business, to everything, the way, the way we know it. And they looked at it, and they decided, out of all the different threats, um, you know, EMPs, solar storms, um, terrorist events, um, you know, Ebola, uh, pandemics, that the number one threat probably that is most likely to be totally disruptive and, and basically knock, knock everything off kilter is a, is a massive solar storm. So they commissioned a study to scientifically model, computer model, the grid in America and the effects of a storm the size of the 1921 one, which was 50% weaker than the one 160 years ago, the Carrington event. So when they did that, they found that they anticipated, the study estimated that about 360 of these transformers in America would, would fry. And talking to the guy who wrote the study, was the chief scientist in charge of it, he estimated, yeah, prob-. I said, what about worldwide, a couple thousand? He said, yeah, that's probably about right, a couple thousand. So, so that's like 10 years' manufacturing capacity for the entire world to replace these things that would wow. be wiped down in a single day or two of a solar storm. So you're talking about an event where the world is going to look totally different when we're done than, than it did at the start of this event. Now, now, so what, what could you expect? You'd go outside at night, and you'd look up, and you'd see the most awesome, awe-inspiring light show. Blood red, orange, green streaks. I mean, just the most incredible northern lights you've ever seen in your life by, by a mile. And then maybe even the next night. And in the Carrington event, it was a whole week it went like that. And in the 1921 event, it was two days of, of awesome light shows. And that light show went all the way from the North Pole to... Puerto Rico and Hawaii, and all the way from the South Pole to American Samoa. So the entire planet was lit up with an amazing light show at night, except for a very narrow sliver around the deep tropical zone, right around the equator. So, okay, so this is a serious event. Now, you were saying, well, what can we do about small events? Well, small events, you guys live in Canada, so, you know, you have to think about, like, how do I keep my pipes from freezing? How do I stay warm in the house? You know, basically... Unless you've got a really well-insulated solar-type home, then you're 
figure on the air temperature in the house is going to equalize eventually with the air temperature outside of the house. So you've got to be able to maintain yourself living, you know, naturally you don't have snow falling on your head because you've got a roof, but you've got to think about how do I stay warm, how do I cook, how do I drink, how do I keep my pipes from freezing, how do I, can I winterize my house and drain the plumbing in my house, and all of that I actually go into in my new book called When Disaster Strikes, which is just a prepping, a prepping and survival manual without a lot of the old-fashioned technologies and eco-green kind of things that are covered in this huge book, the When Technology Fails. So, so think about, you know, that three days to a week. I mean, really, one to two weeks is much more like what I would plan for. The government says plan for three days, but if you guys are watching America during Hurricane Katrina, you know that when there's a really major event, the government's overloaded. No, they're, we're on our own. <laughs> they're not. Yeah, you're on your own. It's called it's called yo-yo time. You're on your own time, and so. You know, think think a couple of weeks at least. I mean, forget about this three-day thing. I mean, three days is a great start, but really think a couple of weeks. And, you know, how how long did – were you around for the big Quebec ice storm in the 1990s when I, – I guess that was more not, not where you are, but it was further into Quebec. Where they, there was areas that lost power for three weeks. Cause it oh, just, sure. Uh, up, sure. And up here in Toronto last uh, winter, there were areas that were out for two two weeks. Easy. Yeah. So, you know, so that's, that's the scenario, I mean, you really want to plan for. And then, then uh, on the solar storm, I mean, the reality is that one of these days, the, the big solar storm is going to hit. And if we're lucky, the government will have had like a warning call, something like the storm that hit South Africa, where, you know, they were still able to limp along with the grid for a year till they fixed it. Um, and in that case, then, you know, if we have a warning call like that, then it's not the end of the world as we know it. Um, if Because there's about a $2 billion fix in, in North America and in the United States. It takes about the price of a single B-2 bomber, one of those single stealth bombers. You know, for the money they, they spend on one bomber, they could harden the grid. They could install these. The technology has already been invented to protect these massive transformers. And it, they're like giant radio tubes vacuum tubes that will shunt power around the transformers into the earth in the event of a, of a huge, either a, an electromagnetic pulse from a terrorist attack, like a North Korea launches a missile trying to stick it to the United States, or in the event of a big solar storm like the 1921 or 1859 storms, then in either of those cases it would protect these these uh, massive transformers. And, you know, that's a pretty cheap insurance. The problem is that... You know, it's kind of a classic case of it ain't broke, don't fix it. And uh, so what happened in America was there's this, the the National Electric Reliability Corporation, sounds like the good guys, call them NERC, N-E-R-C. They sponsored a program with, I think, with the DO Department of Defense or Homeland Security. And they they looked at these major threats to the United States, and they determined that uh, the black swan events, the biggest threat, was the EMP and solar storm, and that we needed to do something about it. So then what does NERC do? Well, well, the government comes in and sponsors a bill that says that private utilities have to pony up the $2 billion out of their own pockets and fix the grid, and that if they can't get their money back from their constituents, then they can petition the government for some help. So what does private industry do? Well, this NERC 
North American Electric Reliability Corporation sounds like the good guys, they said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, we don't have that kind of money. So they put together a new study. They fired the guys who wrote the Hilf report, high-impact, low-frequency report, that said how bad a problem this was. They put some new guys on it, and they came out with a new study that said everything's okay. <laughs> it's like, and I believe in of Santa course. Claus and Tooth Fairy. There you, know? you go. And well, so, of course. Not surprised. Not surprised. And, and, so, and, and uh, how likely is it that we're going to get one of those, you know, minor or less severe EMP events as a, as a, as a warning? I would say that we got, uh, we probably got a two to one chance that we're going to get the warning instead of the big one. So, um, but the, here's the odds. The odds are scientifically, the scientists say we have a one in eight chance every decade for a game over event if we don't fix this problem before it happens. And uh, it's been nine decades since the last one. So I don't know about you, but if somebody told me, don't worry about boarding that plane, there's only a one in eight chance it's going to crash. I, I don't think I'd get on that plane. No, those are not those are not uh, favorable odds. So I mean, short of the government hardening the grid system, what do we do? What do I do? Well, what you do is, is you, you know, you hope the really worst case scenario doesn't happen. But what you do is you start developing, you know, it depends on your money and your finances. You know, if you don't have any money, work on your skill set. Work on your natural healing abilities. Work on your primitive living skills. Work on your ability to grow food and do, you know, do things, the MacGyver kind of stuff that I talk about in the book. If you have some money, then naturally, you know, start stocking up on some extra supplies. And, you know, it's like insurance. I mean... Well, buy car insurance, and nobody says, gee, I want to get in a head-on collision today because I'm covered. It's like, no, you buy insurance, and you pray to God that you never need to use it. And so stocking up on supplies, stocking up on some goods that are barterable, tradable, things that can help you for you know, short to long term in the event that things kind of fall apart, um, it's just good insurance. And, you know, in the least, it'll help you out in the next ice storm. It'll help you out in the next, you know, few days of power outage or... Or if the pandemic goes through, I mean, you know, there's a pretty scary thing with with Ebola. Now, if it turned out that something as deadly as Ebola, but more easily transmitted, like the regular flu, started going around, then we'd be in this boat today. But you know, luckily we've dodged that bullet so far. So there's a whole bunch of things that could could do this, and you don't want to live your life being filled with fear and paranoia. But but you know. Everybody who buys car insurance isn't living their life filled with fear and paranoia. You just have it just in case. You talk about low-tech uh, medicine, and uh, you, you're producing your own coital silver. Is that right? Yes, I, I do. I, I stock, I keep a supply of a coital silver I can't make that's a nano-silver that's very effective against viruses, like in bird flu challenges, and, and apparently there was people using it in Africa very effectively against Ebola, but... But, you know, the FDA will shut anybody down who makes any claims like that. So so I, I have homemade colloidal silver that I make, like, every other day that I use in my water pick to um, to keep my I, – I had gum surgery of, uh, back in the late 90s when I had good insurance working in industry. And a few years later, the doctor said – a dentist said, uh, oh, you need gum surgery again. It's like, what? You know, it, just, it was like a $7,000 surgery, and it was a real drag, and it's just been a few years. I need it again. So I told him, hey, you know, I, I think I'll try something myself. So uh, he's like, yeah, yeah, sure. You'll come back in in six months, and then I'll tell you they've gotten worse, and we'll, we'll arrange the surgery. Do whatever you want, kid. So um, 
I make my own colloidal silver every day, and I put it in my water pick, mix it half and half with, with hot water so it's not too cold on my gums. And, and for the last 10 years, I've kept my gums nice and healthy and avoided surgery doing that. So I make my own colloidal silver every other day, and, and I also have some of this sort of super silver. It's um, nano silver by American Biotech Labs. I don't make a penny off it. I don't sell the stuff myself. And I keep that on stock because that stuff really does work. It does help nail viruses. And so I, I, I have that. I, the homemade stuff may be effective against viruses, but it doesn't really have the data. It, it's effective against all known pathogenic bacteria, but its effectivity on the viruses is not as, not really well documented. Whereas the nano silver has like two or three modes that it works in. And, and it is documented to be quite effective against viruses. So I keep I keep both on hand. And are there instructions in either when disaster strikes or when technology fails on how to make your own colloidal silver? Both both books have instructions on how to make and use colloidal silver. And and you know because you don't want to overdo it. I mean, there's the blue man guy that looks like Papa Smurf who who had been uh, he'd had really bad cases of psoriasis and. He found that colloidal silver was the only thing that helped it. So for 16 years, he made like a quart a day, and, and he pound, was pounding a quart a day of homemade stuff for 16 years. And then he started having some kidney issues, and his kidney stopped taking the silver out of his blood, so it came out of his skin, and it turned him, you know, he, he looks like Papa Smurf now. He was on Fox News three or four years ago. So it's totally possible to overdo it, but, I mean, that, that was a lot. You know, a quart a day for 16 years, he's asking for it. All right, let's uh, take a time out. We'll come back with Matt Stein and discuss when disaster strikes and when technology fails. Stay with us. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes to subscribe. Just go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later. When technology fails, uh, Matt Stein is with us. Uh, Matt, uh, how can we get a copy of uh, either this book or the uh, disaster book? Well, you can get them at any any major online place, like Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Uh, you can also order them at your local bookstore. If they don't already stock it, you can ask them to have it in, and, and they should be able to get it for you in two or three days. And I always like keeping money in your own town, and so whenever you can buy local, you know that's. That's a nice thing to do. I know our local bookstores here are really struggling now because because of uh, the impact of Amazon. So, um, 
All right. Now, uh, people always, uh, especially up here again during the last ice storm, and they, they comment on how, you know, people always come together during a disaster and man is at his best when things are at their worst. And, and, I, and I'm willing to concede that point as long as the, the, the you know, the, the, the period is, is relatively short. Once people start to get hungry or their children start to get hungry, that civility, I contend, will quickly evaporate. So my question to you, Matt, is, are you one who subscribes in terms of, you know, the survival mentality? Do you stay put in the city uh, and risk, you know, some civil unrest, people, you know, knocking on your, not knocking on your door, pounding on your door, perhaps kicking your door in because they heard that you have a generator and maybe a food store? Or do you subscribe to the theory that you bug out, you find some place out in the uh, the wilderness where you're not, you know, you, you, you're not going to have to contend with that uh Civil unrest. Well, there's there's no. Here, one of the things I teach is learning to get in touch with the inner guide because there is no right and wrong answer in all situations. So, I would say that in many situations, if you're in a, if it's a long term problem like a solar storm, you must get out of the city. You're you have no hope in the city. If it's a short-term issue, then you're probably just fine staying put in the city. So that's something where your judgment is so important to making that decision because there, there's no right and wrong solutions, but there's right and wrong decisions in each and every case. And what's right in one case may be totally the opposite and totally wrong in the next case. So one of the things I teach is this pit of the stomach, and it's so important I teach it in both, and it's a it's a technique for shutting off the the rational mind and getting in touch with, I call it the inner compass. It's like the voice of spirit, Holy Spirit, inner compass, your intuition, your gut feel, whatever you want to call it. Each and every one of us has had instances in our lives where we had a very strong intuitive feeling and sometimes we listened and afterwards we're like, oh, thank God I listened to that, you know, because it's, it's like intuitively you knew something around the corner was a major problem or a major danger, and you were being warned. But your rational mind couldn't figure it out because it didn't have the information. You know, your rational mind is great when you got lots of information, but you know, when it's a real disaster, what do you see? You see people walking down the road. They don't have CNN. They don't have the internet. They don't have their iPhones. They don't have their cars. They're walking down the roads, and in those situations, you have to make decisions that can be critical without effective information at your fingertips. So that inner compass that guides is part of each and every one of us. If you didn't have that in your spiritual DNA, then then you got killed in the battlefield or you got eaten by the saber-toothed tiger or whatever. So it's, it's in the DNA of all of the survivors throughout history that have contributed the DNA to make the people who are here on the planet right now. So you've got it. You've got what it takes, but we've been trained to not listen to that in our world. And so... One, you know, I, I teach this in both books how to do, how to do this inner compass because you know, in some cases, bugging out is going to be your only hope, and in other cases, you know, bugging down the road might be the worst thing you could do. You know, you might put yourself open to being picked off by somebody who's better organized, meaner, and tougher, and has bad friends. Bad friends are going to take all your cool stuff from you. But if if you're if you're you're stuck in in the city uh, or even some suburban uh, location. I mean, is it a good idea? Let's say the lights are going to go out for a couple of months, and things could get nasty, but you're going to try and ride it out. I mean, if you've got, do you, I mean, how do you avoid? 
if you're well prepared, uh, how do you avoid people coming around, you know, because they can hear your generator? Do you use a generator? Again, that's something you have to decide at that moment. And if you use a generator, then people are going to know. In general, there's safety in numbers. So the lone wolf who's like super stocked, you know, MacGyver guy, super survival guy, maybe he'll be able to fight off the hordes. But in general, teaming up with a larger group of people is going to give you the best bet because you'll have, you can pull resources, you can pull, you know, nobody can be, stay awake 24-7 and has eyes in the back of their heads. So you're going to be stronger as a small community of people than as a lone wolf, unless unless you can really get that lone wolf way out away from everybody to where, you know, nobody's going to know where you are and know where your stuff is and, and want to get your stuff. Uh, Matt, how much land uh, would someone need, let's say a family of four, uh, two adults, two children, how much land in order to uh, to to grow a you know a survival garden? What do you need? An acre? Less? You know, if you've got really good land, people could do it on like a half an acre. I mean, if you look at subsistence farmers in Africa, you know that's that's what you're looking at. You know, if they've got decent land, uh, certainly you know a five acre mini farm is great. Uh, some of us can afford it, and some of us can't. Uh, you know, it's. Don't say woe is me if I, if you don't have the money to go full bore. Just at least you can start developing skills and you can at least have enough supplies and a go bag so that if there's, if there's some kind of event and you need to purify water for your family, have a colloidal silver, some basic herbs, things like a blood electrifier or, or a MMS, miracle mineral supplements, you know, a bottle of Clorox bleach. I mean, with a bottle of bleach, you can put about eight drops. 10 drops of bleach per quart of water. And, you know, the thing downside to bleach is is that it's not perfect. I mean, if it's really cold, ice-cold water, it can take three or four hours to purify that water. It's not like something that's ready to drink in five minutes. And also, if it's polluted with these nasty bugs called cryptosporidium, which is common in areas where there's livestock in surface water, uh, then, you know, cryptosporidium cysts can can beat chlorination. They can survive like being soaked overnight in full-strength Clorox bleach, which you certainly could. If you drank it, you wouldn't survive. And, uh, but, these, but these cysts can. So, you know, for the most part, Clorox bleach will kill all the bad stuff in your water, unless you happen to have cryptosporidium cysts, and in which case, if you boil it, it'll kill them. Uh, there's UV, I teach UV sterilization, which is called SODIS, S-O-D-I-S, for solar disinfection. Uh, if you're in a bad... You know, scenario where you didn't have any cool stuff that I recommend that you get. You know, no, no uh, SteriPen, no Clorox bleach, no water filter, and and it's raining or, or something. You know, you, you can't make a fire because everything's wet. Well, if you can, if it's raining, you can collect rainwater, and that won't have any bugs in it. But if it's not raining and it's cloudy, or if it's sunny, you can dumpster dive and get clear. Um, bottled water bottles out of the dumpster and if you fill those up with water and you lay them flat in six hours of direct sunlight the uv rays from the sun will purify that water will kill all the nasty bugs and in two days of cloudy weather then it'll kill the nasty bugs so they, they teach a lot of people in africa to collect cast off um, bottled water bottles from you know american and european tourists 
and then fill those with water and let the sun disinfect their water so that they don't get dysentery. So there's a lot of really cool things in the book, and I try to give people a variety of methods. Like, here's the great, while the world's still working well, here's the cool stuff you should get. Here's how you can live more sustainably and more self-reliantly while the world's working well. And if things really fall apart, then here's the old-fashioned ways. Here's how to make a sand filter. Here's how to make a sari filter, S-A-R-I, like the Indian sari. Here's how to do solar disinfection. So I kind of try to give people a whole smorgasbord of, of tools and techniques. And so some of them cost a fair amount of money, and some of them cost pennies. And so at least there's something that will help you out in almost any situation. And, and how about uh, energy, heat, for example? Uh, let's say you've got your uh, your little uh, cabin in the woods. Uh, I mean, are you are you heating primarily with wood? Uh, what are you doing? Uh, some well, sort of a solar panel? A backup source of wood. I mean, it, you know, if you have a supply of wood, you're not out in the prairie or something, and you have a supply of wood, then you know, wood is something you can pretty much always go out and forage for, and and split and, and do even in the dead of winter if you have to. And so it's always great to have like a backup source of a wood stove. Uh, in fact, I live in earthquake country and I've gone to, um, for convenience, I've gone to gas fireplace type, you know, freestanding gas stoves that look like a wood stove. But I've kept my wood stove and I've got a couple of cords, a few cords of wood, actually four cords stacked out back. So if we had an earthquake, then and the gas lines are broken. Then then I, you know, it'd take me a few hours, and I I'd, I'd take apart the chimney flue and the and the stove, the gas stove, and I put back my wood stove, and I'd be up and going again. So, you know, the gas is nice and reliable as long as the gas line doesn't break or you know some weird thing happens like a solar storm. There are electric pumps now. It used to be that the gas lines were all pressurized with gas powered pumps now they're pressurized with electric pumps and that's fine if you don't have a long um power outage you know big blackout but even now you 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 know used to be you thought oh i've got gas so i'm covered in an out power outage but no there's they're now using electric pumps to keep the natural gas flowing in the pipelines so if you have a long-term grid down situation then your gas is going to stop so a lot of people don't realize that. You know, if you got propane, yeah, you can use it until a propane tank's empty, and then you'll be, then you'll be out of luck. So, so what I'm talking about is no one can plan for every single thing, but you can plan for a lot of the most likely scenarios. And you know, there's there's great free information at my website whentechfails.com, like totally free. Uh, you know, what do you recommend? What do I recommend for grab and go kit? What do I recommend for? Um, for medicines and herbs to have on hand in case, you know, to help prevent, help your family in the event of the next superbug or the next pandemic or, or something just happens to where you don't have access to pharmaceuticals. You know, what, what do you do? And, you know, how do you purify water? So I got a lot of totally free information on the website. So, so go check it out. It gives you sort of a little taste of what's in the books. What about protein? Uh, do, you, do you have chickens? I did have chickens. I'd like to have chickens again. Uh, I had a nice mini farm in chickens, and uh, and I'm working to re to do that again. I I had chickens, and I loved the fresh eggs every day. And I had just you know a full acre of garden, I had like ten acres with solar and and great well, and and you know full acre of gardens and chickens, and 
And so my goal is to get back to that. Uh, you know, certain circumstances changed, and we let go of that and moved to a different place. And so I have um, I have a lot of stored food at this point in time, but I don't I don't have chickens. But I certainly the ability to forage is really big, and I like to to tell this story to people because people think you know there's a tendency. I'm not saying not to have guns and ammo for protection, for trade, for barter, for hunting. I'm, I'm I think that they're always a really good idea to have, you know, and and I'm not telling people not to do that. Uh, but on the other hand, pe- there's a lot of people in America who think, well, I got a gun, so you know, I can go out and hunt and it'll be fine. Well, I grew up in Vermont, and no one wanted to go hunting on the last day of hunting season. I mean, it, I, I've talked to thousands of people and I haven't raised their hands and say, how many of you people out there had a really good day hunting on the last day of hunting season? I had two people raise their hand. One woman got it like a 10-point elk and, and some guy got a big buck on the last day of hunting season. But for the most part, the game is really scarce and it's just not there. And so when when North Korea went down, when, when the Soviet Union came in on Christmas Day and said it's over in like 1991, they, you know, Gorbachev came in and said, okay, it's over. Well, North Korea and Cuba lost their pipeline to spare parts, pharmaceuticals, gas, oil, coal, all those things. And in North Korea, if you weren't part of the government, you were starving. Every rat, mouse, squirrel, um, grasshoppers, worms, you know, grassroots. I mean, people were eating everything. Mm, There was nothing left wandering around that, that, that moved, you know, kitties, dogs, you know, they were, they were the first to go. So think about that. And, and the, one, one day about a decade, 15 years ago, I was on the, I was on the uh, radio show with a survival instructor who taught primitive living skills out of Arizona. Might have been Cody Lundin. I just, in those days, I had no idea who Cody Lundin was. Probably was him, but I can't swear by that. And he was saying that in his survival class teaching primitive living schools that the men and women split into two groups for the last three days of the session where they had to go out in the wilderness and you weren't allowed to bring fish hooks or guns or knives or any of that stuff basically just the clothes on your back and you had to do everything the old-fashioned way you know make cordage like indians did make fish hooks from natural stuff and whatever so the men and women split into two groups and come day three you know, the, the men would focus on hunting and fishing, that's the manly stuff, and the women would focus on foraging for edible fruits, nuts, berries, tubers, things like that. Well, come day three, invariably, the women took pity on the men who were starving because they, with, without modern tools, they weren't able to get anything. And they shared their bounty that they got from foraging. So that's like a really valuable lesson to think about, is that your ability to forage uh, could be a life and death thing in, in, in a long-term situation because with all the heavily armed people, you know, unless you feel like shooting other people and taking their stuff, uh, and certainly being able to defend yourself with a gun is, is a valuable thing, but to count on it for game and, and providing food for yourself, it's like, yeah, to supplement it's great, but remember those survival people and remember all those hunters when I asked him how many had a good day in the last day of hunting season, and think about that. Your ability to forage is critical. Is there a, is there a wild edible section in either of those books, When Technology Fails or When Disaster there, Strikes? In When Technology Fails, there's a wild edible section, and then each chapter ends in a resource guide. And so I also recommend, like, top books. So, for instance, you, you want to pick up a really good top wild edible book 
you know, and I can only tell so teach so much about each individual thing in my book, and I do have a wild edible section. But I also recommend, like, if you go to my When Technology Fails website, there's recommend there's links to recommended books down the right column. So, like, for instance, I'm going down this column right now, and I know I got them in there. Oh yeah, there's two books by the same guy that are really terrific called Nature's Garden and The Forager's Harvest, and uh, Thayer Samuel Thayer is the author, and he, instead of teaching you like 500 wild edibles he's teaching you like the 200 most common most valuable like most edible really terrific and and so what's really important is being able to identify them in different seasons of the year and being able to you know having really good descriptions for identifying and how to prepare them and how to make sure and how to make sure that there's not something that's poisonous that's a look-alike all that kind of stuff is, is really important and so um so I do recommend various books. So one of the cool things I did in When Technology Fails is each chapter is designed to be standalone and give you enough information that if you're handy, that you could do it with nothing else other than my book. But it also ends in a resource guide at the end of the chapter. So if you want to, if you say, you know, I want to go further than this chapter could go, then you might pick up like the best two or three books I recommend, you know, on the subject covered by the chapter to expand your library. Well, Matt, this is stuff really that that uh, we should be teaching in the schools, uh, but we should certainly be familiarizing ourselves uh, with in our own households. It's time to start imparting this knowledge uh, to our children, uh, just you know, as in days long ago when this type of information, when survival was an everyday challenge. This is. These are things that people needed to know, and it's been lost uh, to us. Uh, yeah. the, 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 art, the art of canning, for example. How many people know how to can anymore? This is essential uh, for survival. And as you say, whether the power goes out for 72 hours or whether we're looking at uh, something far more dire, uh, it's never too soon or perhaps too late to, uh, to start familiarizing ourselves with these things. Matt, thank you so much for your time tonight. You're welcome. It's a pleasure, and uh, I really enjoyed the evening so goodbye everybody here's my motto i ask everyone to do their best to change the world and do your best to be ready for the changes in the world thank you so much thank you matt when technology fails and when disaster strikes mattstein.com a new conspiracy unlimited with richard serrett drops every monday wednesday and friday at conspiracy unlimited podcast.com blow your mind that is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.